graduates of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead and maximize their impact on the world we live in. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on the business of environmental activism and the powerful work of Tansi Whalen, Director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. Over the last year, we've talked a lot about activism, the importance of engaging to protect and advance the issues we care about most, and various ways that we can make that happen as individuals. We know that when we vote, when we march, even when we shop, our voices can be heard. But some voices are louder than others, and as a result, their potential to spark change bigger, which is why the powerful stream of activism coming from the business community is so important. Think about today's news. We've seen business leaders withdrawing from the president's councils, condemning his defense of the alt-right in Charlottesville. They're joining their peers who walked away following his announcement of the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement. These protests are important symbols of their values and signs of how organizations can emerge as forces for social big, social good on a big scale. My guest today sees that potential and leverages it, working with businesses to be not just reactive but proactive to fix what government can't or won't. Tansi Whalen is director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business, and she's been working for more than two decades to increase businesses' engagement with sustainability and is a shining example of the impact one woman can make on issues that affect all of us. If you'd like to join in the conversation, whether you have a question for Tansi or you want to share your stories of how you're trying to get your voice to count, we'd really love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 942 7866. You can also reach us at Business Radio at SiriusXM.com if you'd like to send us an email. Um, I'm now particularly delighted to welcome Professor Tansi Whalen, Director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business, to our New York studio. She brings 25 years of experience working on local, national, and international environmental and sustainability issues. Um, where she And she's at NYU where she works to engage businesses in proactive and innovative mainstreaming of sustainability. I think it's really cool that as president of the Rainforest Alliance, she built that organization from a $4.5 million budget to a $50 million budget, recruiting 5,000 companies in more than 60 countries to work with Rainforest Alliance. Her previous work also included serving as executive director of the New York League of Conservation Voters, vice president of the National Audubon Society, managing editor of Ambio, a journal of the Swedish Academy of Sciences, and a journalist in Latin America. So, Tansi, welcome to Women at Work. It's so wonderful to be here. So, one of the questions I have for you right now is this difference between policy and practice. When we see a government that's not necessarily helping advance these issues, can business save the day when government's failing us? I think business can play an incredibly important role. I mean, if you think about it, $22 trillion of the U.S. GDP is in uh, business. $3 trillion is in government and NGOs. So right there, in terms of the power that business has, it's, it's huge. And I think, um, as we've seen with the recent resignations from the President's Council over his various remarks and actions, um, they can stand up, but they've stood up on other things, transgender issues, climate change issues. We have a coalition called We Mean Business that has said, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and, and have 60% greenhouse gas emissions, no matter what the government does. We're going to um, really commit to what the Paris Accord laid out uh, on our own. So this is giving us a sense that despite the bad rap that business gets, that the drive for profit is everything, that the drive for profit can mesh with ethics, Yes, you can have people, planet, and profits. (laughs) Okay, people, planet, and profits. Yes. So talk to me about where your work comes into play with this. Yes. So at the Center for Sustainable Business, we work with uh, future business leaders as well as current business leaders to really help them see sustainability as both the biggest challenge but also the biggest opportunity of our generation, right? We've got climate change issues, inequity issues. All of those things are things that gov- that, that um, business needs to manage for in terms of managing risk, 
But it's also a huge business opportunity. When you look at the sustainable development goals that all of our uh, the countries around the world sign on to, there's about $12 trillion of business opportunities there that they've identified in terms of making cities more sustainable um, or looking at uh, renewable energy issues or health and well-being. So I think there's great opportunity for business to, to play a leadership role. And at Stern, we're helping students learn about the skills that they would need to do that. We're doing research uh, to um, uh, with business to look at how they can better understand the business case for sustainability. And then we're also doing a lot of outreach and events to bring attention to the issues. I want to step back to some uh, phrase you threw in there. Talk about inequity and how does that play into um, opportunity and obligation? Yeah. Well, I think one of the challenges with the current form of shareholder-focused um, business, capitalism really. So since the 1970s, we've focused on creating value for shareholders as the thing that all managers of companies are are compensated around, right? Right, And measured by. And measured by. And when you do that, that means that you focus on them to the exclusion of things that are your cost centers. And so you see labor, for example, as a cost center. You aim to reduce labor productivity in order to create more uh, higher margins so you get better compensated and so your shareholders make more money. But ultimately, that's destructive for the shareholders. It's destructive for society to be constantly looking to see how you can minimize um, labor. So, Mm -hmm. and just as an and that creates more inequity, right? Um, you know, as you have. Um, uh, that kind of focus strictly on investors and not on the rest of us, it, it's its challenging for society. So when you're talking about sustainability, and I think this also taps in to the UN sustainability goals, it's not just about environmental sustainability. There are a lot of factors there. Yeah, sustainability really is environmental, social, governance, economic. It's, it's really how do you approach from a systems perspective Um, how you produce things in a way that's sustainable. How do you shop in a way that's sustainable? How do you manage in a way that's sustainable? So it can be everything from gender diversity um, uh, to, um, you know, uh, waste and pollution to um, how do you um, work with your suppliers, right? Okay, can't resist. Talk to me about the gender diversity aspects of it, Mm -hmm. both in the labor force and in the the impact on the environment? Well, I think there's more and more studies coming out showing that uh, if you have poor diversity in your business, uh, that reflects poorly in your financials, ultimately. So Bloomberg came out with a gender diversity index, and they found that the top quartile, um, who, uh, in terms of their performance on gender diversity, outperforms significantly the bottom quartile. And, and when you think about that, it makes sense. You know, businesses today are serving a diversity of different customers. They should have people representing that diversity in their organization, whether it's gender, race, age, or even just the way you think. I mean, you can't run an organization with everybody being a type A personality, right? <laughs> right. You know, so it's, we've tried; it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work. work, right? So, so that's really critical to being a well-managed company um, is to have the diversity of thought. So, amongst your thoughts over your life, it's clear you've had this pattern of activism, and particularly related to environmental sustainability throughout your career. Talk to me about what sparked it and why it's taken the path that it did. Well, I I grew up in New York City, and I was lucky enough to have a mother who worked for the criminal, so the Vera Institute for Criminal Justice Reform, so she was very active on the social side. And then my dad worked at the Museum of Natural History when I was a kid. So um, I got to experience um, parents who were very active and engaged, but also both the environmental and social side. So I've actually always cared about both. Uh, and then we have a farm in Vermont, so we did a lot of hiking and camping. Um, and then also my parent, my grandparents lived in Mexico City when I was a kid. And going there and seeing the, the real extremes of poverty and wealth was something that has stayed with me forever, you know. And also, I think, sparked an interest in doing international work, which I have done for a while. Because you started out in school. You studied politics and then journalism. Yes, I did. So how did that lead to business and environmental sustainability? <laughs> yeah, good, good, good question, right? Um, so let's see what happened. So with uh, 
uh, journalism, I, I was I was very interested in, as I said, sort of being overseas in different cultures, and and so the first job I could get internationally was in Sweden. Um, so I because I, everybody just applies for their first job in Sweden, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> it's like well, I looked at it, I was like, why not? They're cute, they're cute guys there, you know. <laughs> It'll be fun. It's a and how old were you when you did this? Uh, I was twenty seven, six, twenty seven, okay. twenty six. Yeah. So done with graduate school. And yeah, ready done to with go graduate start. school, and okay. then I had worked for World Wildlife Fund actually. So I were, I had interned at World Wildlife Fund when I was in graduate school. And so I got interested in the environment. And then um, I got this job uh, as a associate editor at the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, editing their international um, journal in English. So, um, And then I met my husband there. And then we decided to go to Latin America together. And so I worked as a journalist there. And he was uh, working as an environmental economist. So, And then, then what happened I, when I came back, um, I, I always... <sighs> I'm very pragmatic about how you get things done. I've never been a campaigner per se. And one of the things that I learned in Latin America is I saw the negative impact of campaigners on people who were just trying to make a living, you know. So when I was there, we had um, the first sort of outcries against, you know, cutting down rainforest for beef. So, so there was boycotting McDonald's and so on. And the activists up here were right about that, but they hadn't thought about the fact that from one day to the next, when McDonald's pulled out, all of a sudden those people who had been doing that, poor people, had no job. So it wasn't like they stopped cutting down the forest. They were now cutting down the forest to do slash and burn agriculture to put food on the table for their family. So I, I saw a lot of that, and I started to think more about how do you really bring people together um, to really change practices in a way that allows people to live a dignified life, but also protects the environment for them and for everybody else. So when you talk about the campaigners, you're talking about people who are spreading a message, but not necessarily involved in solving the problem. Right. And we need them. Actually, you know, you need throughout any type of movement, you need people who are, you know, more on the radical side, you need the pragmatists, and you need the problem solvers, you need everybody, right? But I'm more of a pragmatist problem solver, I want to figure out how to change things. But you were also trained as a journalist who's essentially the storyteller. That's true, too. So how did you build these skills to shift from understanding the story and sharing it to shaping it? Well, I think the communication skills really helped me. Let me back up a minute. So I think what you need in order to be a good leader to affect change Mm -hmm. is you need to you need to understand what the different stakeholders want and you need to be able to then communicate to them in their language what you want in a way that's going to get to a win-win. So communication skills and listening are really critical to that. Uh, and so I think that that education in journalism helped me develop those skills. Um, and that's the, also a difference in communicating to proselytize a message. Yes. And where communicating is a two-way street. That's right. It is. It's, it's I, I'm not going to be successful if I come in here and talk at you. I need to hear where you're coming from and figure out where our commonalities are and then figure out how I can then move you over time to where I'm hoping we can get together. Right. Um, and then, you know, the other part of sort of building an organization, I'm the oldest child. I like bossing people around. <laughs> you know? so, like, you know, I was always the one organizing who got all the M&Ms and right. Then was the next one. I got it as my profit on the deal, you know, <laughs> see a business mind at work early. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think um, the other part of really building an organization and a movement is figuring out what the key leverage points are. Right. So if you're when I went to work for Rainforest Alliance, um, I needed to understand each industry that we we're involved in and who does where, you know, how the whole supply chain worked and who controlled it and who were the key players and what were the things that made them tick and how could, you know, our message get to them and move them towards a positive action. This is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Tansi Whalen, who's director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. If you have a question about what we're discussing, um, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you at one 1- Wharton. That's 1-844-942-7866. So walking into the rainforest, those were obviously essential to your success. How did you figure it out and navigate it? Did you hit the ground running knowing all of this? No, but I had, fortunately, I had um, built up and run a couple of smaller organizations before that. So I had 
come into the New York League of Conservation Voters, and um, we just had a board and no staff, and I figured out how to build that up, and then I built a federation of state leagues around the country. So if, if I were in business, I'd probably be a serial entrepreneur. You know, I, I like <laughs> right. building organizations. Yeah, it's fun, right? Um, so I, I, I had some of those skills, but the way that I've always started in all these organizations is to start with what are we doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? Uh, talk to all the different stakeholders about what they think we should be doing or not doing, um, and then design a strategic plan that looks that really has very clear um, goals and targets mm-hmm. for the substance of what we're doing, and and a way to uh, ensure that we have some early wins so we can get buy-in and support. Um, but that also has an organizational design piece because I find that that many people who are involved in the issues don't actually think about well, how do I keep the lights on? How do I pay my people? Once how again, do I not just the message, but <laughs> right. what are the implications of each thing that stops and starts? Right, exactly. So it sounds though one of the things that you're making central to the way that you operate, and I'm hearing it almost in each part of your life that you're sharing, is this recognition of different communities, Mm -hmm. that you grew up with a kind of a set of international experiences Mm -hmm. and um, learning and moving through different cultures. And that especially um, when you started to build this coalition, you were working with people having very different experiences. How did you learn how to hear them and make room for them because most, and I'm not saying all, but I think it's a thing that uh, a wisdom that comes with age that we learn how to make room for other people's points of view. It's mm-hmm. not easy to come to when we're young. Yeah. Was it a natural gift that you had, or how did you get there? It's a it's a good question. I I think I've always been interested in what makes people tick and why they do what they do right Is that the journalist in you maybe that was the journalist I mean I one of my favorite classes was political psychology when you know in college about sort of Amer- American ideologies and why people are attracted to different ideologies and how one thing that always stuck with me, which is interesting today, is sort of people on the all the way on the right and all the way on the left are actually not at either ends, but at the sort of a circle that comes together in terms it's, of personality it's scary types. scary and thought-provoking. <laughs> it is, right? So I, I, I think taking that interest in what makes people tick and then being very focused on getting done the things that I think are important for the world, bringing those two things together, recognizing that all of my jobs have been about soft power and persuasion. I've never held a job where I could force someone to do something, right? I mean, well, that's not true. I could force my team who reported to me to do <laughs> right. things. But generally, I was trying to get CEOs to do things, right, or other NGOs or communities. Of People whom... who are actually out, even outside your own organization. Exactly, who I could not in any way force to do something. So um, really understanding uh, you know, developing those skills to um, find what would be the lever to get them to make a large commitment to sustainable supply chain practices, for example, um, was really taking those skills of communication, of listening, of understanding what makes people tick, and also what makes a business tick. Like, so I would go, I would really understand as well as possible, kind of. Um, what that business's challenges were from a sustainability point of view so I could try to come up with some solutions for them. So as you were starting to have this kind of international cross-organizational dialogue, did you find that there was a difference in the cultures that you were in, particularly in working with these CEOs? Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing at this point you're still a relatively young woman doing this. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was. Um, well, so first of all, I think when I first started out, it was both a function of age, but also a function of the age of the CEOs I was dealing with. So quite often I'd be in a room with somebody who'd give me that little smirk that you as a woman probably are familiar with. All too. Yes. yes. Um, and then what would be interesting. Like, oh, honey, you yeah. really think you yeah, know something exactly. about this? Right. They wouldn't say that, but that little smirk was there. And then what gave me such pleasure is, you know, after a certain, depending on the person, it would take me you know, a couple minutes or 20 minutes to get that smirk away and then have them actually paying attention. What happened in the early days is I'd say there were a lot older CEOs who were really not used to interacting with women that way. So it was much, took me much longer to get them there. And some of them I didn't get there. Um, As the age of the CEOs went down more to sort of the 50s and 40s, I found that I had less of that smirk thing to deal with Mm -hmm. and more, um, you know, and, and less 
lack of understanding about sustainability. They had a general understanding of it, and it was more than, okay, how do I make the case that that you can do this in your business in a way that is going to be positive for your business? So I think that I've really seen a shift both in terms of uh, the way in which they dealt with me as a woman and the way they dealt with me as someone talking about sustainability. What changed in you as you were going through this process? What did you learn about how to operate in that setting? Um, I th- so I think one it was to get competition going. So, ah. you know, I'd, I'd figure out where there'd be an easier mark, <laughs> <laughs> so to say. So somebody in, the, you know, a, a CEO who already had, you know, an interest in these types of issues and get one on board. And if I get one on board, then I could talk to CEO X or, you know, head of sustainability Y and say, look, you know, so-and-so is on board. Um, and here's why, and I'm hoping to engage you in this as well, right? So that that competition really works. And you played them off of each other. I played them off of each other, yeah. That's very wise. Yeah. How creative. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also encourage collaboration. So that would be the first step. But then um, all of them had shared problems that they often didn't recognize that they had. What was an example of one of the problems and the kind of collaboration that could result to address it? Yeah, so... um, one example is uh, in this country, a lot of the forests are owned by um, small landowners. And in order to, there's a lot of pulp paper companies that make commitments around sustainable sourcing. But with these small landowners who own maybe 10, 20 acres, it's very challenging to figure out how to work with them on their sustainability practices. And a lot of their wood just shows up. Um, as they called Gatewood at the um, entrance of a particular factory or, or buyer. Um, so we, I, I brought together CEOs from different parts of the supply chain. Um, you know, somebody who was a branded company, somebody who was a pulp paper company, a finance company, to all work together to figure out how to solve that problem, right? And a university and, and other partners. Um, in Cocoa, we were, uh, Rainforest Alliance was working with a coalition around that, right? So uh, right now, we just finished a project, which is very interesting, um, with, uh, well, I'll, I'll talk about that later. So, 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 <laughs> t- 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 I'm a- a- taking too long to answer the question. But I think there's a lot of, a lot of um, what they would call sort of pre-competitive collaboration happening now around these sustainability issues that are very positive for companies in all kinds of sectors. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Tansi Whalen, who's director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. So you mentioned the role of a university in this kind of coalition that you were building. Um, What was the role of a university amidst these landowners, the small private landowners, the paper companies? At that time, what role were the universities playing? So the universities often have, first of all, they're a neutral convening ground. They have experts. So in that case, the university had experts around sustainable forest management practices. Um, And they had connections with, uh, you know, they were sending um, students in to become employees at these various companies, and they had connections in the community. So I think, you know, in my role at Stern, um, Stern Business School has huge connections in the finance sector, for example. And so we, and we have credibility as a neutral convener on on those types of issues and, and other issues. So I think universities, both in terms of research and in terms of convening and in terms of sending people to be working at these companies are, are a key partner. Look, I live within that environment and agree that there's a tremendous, I feel like there's a tremendous privilege to be part of it and a power that comes from being able to be at the intersection of real scholarship, students who are hungry to learn and go and shape these industries and the trust that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, it also means that you're sitting at the intersection of mission-driven organizations and profit-driven organizations. How did you get them to work together? Uh, well, increasingly, mission-driven organizations are recognizing the power that business has and that they need to work with business to change their practices. You know, I go back to that that number of $12 trillion. If If that $12 trillion... Uh, you, know, you can't you can't change things sufficiently with philanthropy or even with government regulation. Is if that twenty two trillion is doing whatever it wants to do, regardless of of you know sort of the best practices. So I think increasingly NGOs are recognizing they need to work with business, whether they're in social services or environmental issues or, or any other area. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's a lot easier today to for a university to say, hey, let's bring you together with business on a particular issue that you're both interested in, like renewable energy or other types of things. And, and increasingly, businesses are recognizing that um, groups can actually provide outside perspectives that will be useful to them, not just something that they're doing because they have to. So within Wharton People Analytics, at the very heart of what we do is work with um, living, breathing organizations to conduct research, to apply our research to their practice. Um, But there's a difference in how we work different rates of um, a speediness within different types of organizations. How do you bridge that gap of the pace of change and activity within the academic world and often the not-for-profit world with for-profit companies who are used to moving at a much faster pace? I, I actually, my experience with for-profit companies is actually oftentimes it takes a very long time for them to get their act together. So I, <laughs> I'm comforted. I, I actually sort of somewhat resist that characterization. It's true at times. You have, you know, universities can be uh, huge bureaucracies, very hard to move things through. Uh, NGOs can take a lot of t- long time to, to make decisions. But I find the same with, with corporations as well. And so I think it's a question of finding something they all really want to work on and then laying out a work plan that they all agree to and then making sure you manage it really well to move forward and hit, hit your targets. Do you find that you change at all having to move between these two settings? Does it bring out different parts of you? Hmm. Um, no, it, other than adjusting the, um, the way in which I deliver the message a bit, probably. How does it change? I would say with business, and this goes to your earlier question, I need to be more direct and to the point, but in a way that's politically palatable. So, <laughs> Oh, right. So you can't, in some ways you can't be as blunt. I can't be as blunt. But you have to be crisp. But I have to be crisp. That's a very good characterization. Okay. Um, with, in the university, um, I need to be political at times because what I'm doing is very different. You know, this the whole focus on sustainability is not what most business schools are focused on. So I also need to be, um, if, if I can be blunt, but I also need to be uh, careful about how I move things forward. Um, but I would say in that case, I'm not trying to uh, get them to change their behavior in the way that I am trying to get a business person to change their behavior. Right. You're just, it's more that you're trying to retain their engage support them. Yeah, and engage exactly. them. By the way, we're going to need to take a break shortly, but stay with us. After the break, Tansi and I are going to continue our conversation about sustainability in business, how we engage different stakeholders to come together, um, and the power of activism writ large within the business community. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm coming to you today from the SiriusXM studios in New York City. My guest this hour is Tansi Whalen, Director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. Tansi served as Executive Director of the New York League of Conservation Voters, Vice President of the National Audubon Society, Managing Editor of Ambio, a journal of the Swedish Academy of Sciences, and a journalist in Latin America, all before becoming one of the most influential people in business ethics. Um, so she's here in the studio with me today. So I'd like to say, Tansi, we're so glad you're here. I'm so glad I'm here. So, you know, in the beginning of the first half hour, we were talking about this political landscape that we're in. And I was wondering, how is the Trump era, the new era we're in, changing the work that you're doing and that the center is doing? I think that the Trump era is is forcing us all to recognize that we as individuals and we as business leaders need to step up and uh, take responsibility for moving forward an agenda that's going to ensure that we have a good society for our children and our grandchildren, right? So that means that we need to step up on tackling climate change. It means we need to step up on tackling racism. It means we, it means we need to step up on 
um, a whole series of issues around the future of society in the United States, but also globally. Uh, so I think in a way, while it's it's incredibly challenging, it's also exciting to know that we have that responsibility. It's, it kind of dovetailed with something that Gloria Steinem said after the election, um, that had Hillary won, it's not as if um, the gender divide would have been gone. We're just now seeing that it is apparent, it remains, and the same thing with this overt racism that's mm-hmm. going on. Um, given that we know that there's this call to action, this reminder that there's this work to be done, how do these multi-pronged issues tie into your work at Stern? Because as you're working on business sustainability, how much of it is an environmental and how much of your work is about these other factors and how they intersect? So my top priority at Stern is to really help business demonstrate the financial case for embedding environmental, social, governance, sustainability into their companies. What I have found is that most companies are not actually tracking the financial benefit of gender diversity, uh, protection of the environment, better employee treatment. You know, so so as an example, we saw how Walmart was regularly underpaying and not treating its workers well. That had ended up having a negative impact on customer service. So they started to invest more and that improved customer service. That is a sustainability issue. And that is one that needs to be addressed. Um, well, part of it needs to be really looking at the economics of it. So we have a we we have a methodology that we're designing, and we just finished testing it on a really interesting project around looking at deforestation-free supply chains. So 450 major companies have made commitments to take deforestation out of their supply chains, and so we um, but but they're not they've made these commitments, but they're not really executing on it. And my uh, um, assessment was that while part of it is that it's complicated, but part of it is that they didn't see the financial case for it. So we partnered with McDonald's and Carrefour, which is a European retailer, uh, slaughterhouses and ranchers in Brazil to basically look at the financial case for the uptake of deforestation-free and sustainable agricultural practices and um, go and monetize all of the innovations, the risk reduction, um, all the different changes that were made. And what we found is that ranchers had a 2.3 increase in productivity. They had an 8 um, times increase in um, profitability. Their quality of their beef went from zero high quality to 70% high quality. And this was all through the uptake of sustainable agriculture practices. Uh, and then that was then passed on up to the chain. So the slaughterhouses had, slaughterhouses, um, had a more um, uh, stable source of supply, higher quality, were able to charge more, less risk, and similarly for the retailers like McDonald's. So we're now taking that same methodology and bringing it to the automotive industry and we want to really help CFOs begin to actually look at these financial uh, questions um, and monetize what the impact of their sustainability investments are so that they can then make the case to invest more in sustainability um, and and improving economic and social practices and financial practices, uh, sorry, um, environmental practices in their company. So it's a way of reflecting back to make sure I'm understanding it. I'm going to oversimplify this for a minute, but it reminds me of the parallel of I can say I'm going on a diet. But I can't measure, I can't manage what I don't measure. Mm-hmm. And so I can say I'm going on a diet and then I still have cake at lunch. But then, um, and as a big Weight Watchers fan out of the closet, everyone should know, um, that by starting to track what I was consuming and knowing where I wanted to be in terms of my goals, I could then make a series of decisions that had a ripple effect yep. about how I was going to meet that goal. Mm-hmm. So that you, So what you're saying is that with the organizations and with these companies, some of it starts with tracking the things that lead to to sustainability, as opposed to the normal things that they track that are about, say, shareholder profit. Exactly. I mean, another really interesting example, pulp and paper company uh, said, you know, hey, look, we have all this waste coming out of two mills. Um, we have to pay to dispose of it, and it's toxic, so we have to pay a lot. Uh, what do we do with it instead? You know, applying this sustainability lens, this design thinking lens. And they said, hey, we can make actually, it's a bio product. We can make a fertilizer out of this for the local farmers. Um, those farmers now no longer have to use nitrogen fertilizer, which is a problem in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and creating all the kinds of pollution. Uh, it's cheaper for them, and we make a little money off of it and no longer have to wait, pay our waste. So there's all this really interesting sort of 
design thinking and innovation that can come around when you start to apply this lens and you start to think about it in a very different way. So uh, help our listeners see what the work looks like at Stern. Mm -hmm. That when you're figuring these things out and helping an organization track, who does that? Where do they do it? What tools are they using? Yeah, so I, I think there's really two stages, right, of working with a business. So the, the first thing is for a business to really look at what are the key material sustainability issues, environmental, social, and governance, and economic for my company. So we design what's called a materiality matrix where you look at those issues and you look also at not only what your perception is, but what stakeholders' perception is. So is it a complex spreadsheet of sorts? It's a, it's a, it's a, like a, two, you know, a two by two, you know, like those Harvard consultants. Exactly. Um, and then you just plot an effect on a graph. Let's say you're, um, uh, you're a Lipton tea, right? Um, so you would look at, well, what are some key environmental and social issues for me? Well, labor in my supply chain uh, would be one. Um, environmental one would be uh, there's a lot of trees being cut down to dry the tea. So I need to look at that. And then you'd look at, and there's lots of others, which is an example. And then you'd say, all right, who are my key stakeholders to care about this? What NGOs and what community groups do I need to talk to to hear what they have to say about these issues, right? So you start with that kind of an analysis. And then you design targets uh, that you take core to your business strategy. So a good example, uh, Unilever's um, CEO, Paul Pullman, has made his Unilever sustainable, sustainable Living Plan his business strategy. And that business strategy is to double their growth while having their environmental footprint, while giving new jobs to about a million small producers around the world, while doing 100% sustainable sourcing. you got to love it. There's no shortage of ambition there. Right? Uh, and building all these brands with purpose that actually have you know, a benefit to the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's uh, th that sort of analysis and vision is really important working with business. And then the next piece that we're working on is, all right, so you've got that analysis, you know what your strategy is. How do we put in place the financial metrics to actually assess how you're doing with that financially? Because if you don't track that business case, then eventually you might have an active defense activist investor come along and say, what are you doing all that stuff for? Let's just get rid of it and save some money and put money right. you know, back to the shareholders. How early in the process does this work become transparent to the investors and the shareholders? I think it dep you know, depends on the company. Um, but uh, there are now also reporting mechanisms or sustainability accounting standards board started by uh, Mike Bloomberg and others, which uh, has reporting mechanisms for investors um, you've got uh, a growing number of what are called environmental, social, and governance ESG data providers who go out there and track um, and provide all that data to investors around performance metrics. Um, and then you have now today, one in five dollars in this country is invested in environmental, social, and governance um, investments. It's up 33% from two years ago and 50% from two years What's before that. What's caused the rise? Uh, you know, I think a couple of different things. One is we're seeing this strong correlation between good ESG performance and good stock performance and lower cost of capital um, and better operational performance. We're seeing millennials, we're be the beginning of the shift of the money going from the baby boomers to the millennials and the millennials care about these mm -hmm. things more. Um, we're also seeing that even, you know, companies like uh, BlackRock, Larry Fink saying, you know, to his letter to shareholders, we're too focused on the short term that is destructive of value. And we need to be focusing more on these sets of issues um, around ESG. So I think there's a people are seeing this as a business opportunity and as something that their customers are asking for. This is Women at Work, by the way, on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I am your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm here in New York talking with Tansi Whalen, who's the director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. So, Tansi, within the Stern Center, how many staff do you have? How many students are involved? We have, we just started a year and a half ago, um, and we have now five uh, staff. That's um, a nice start. Yeah, it's a nice start. Yep. Yeah. And I also have been able to bring in Stern alums who have great experience. So they've been working with us as senior scholars, so we're able to augment that and also work with professors in the university in Stern who are uh, partners with us on, on research. In terms of students, um, we uh, have a number of classes. 
classes and a new sustainable business concentration at the undergrad level and at the graduate level. So I'll be able to tell you better in a year, you know, how many <laughs> students we have involved in those. Um, but we, we typically get, we have events regularly and we typically get a hundred students to turn out to those events, um, which is good because they're very busy. Um, we have um, classes that, you know, on sustainability that have meet the max of 40 students. And so I think there's, and we've done surveys that show that a really significant number of students are very interested in these issues. Oh, indeed. Yeah. So like you were saying earlier, you're really a serious entrepreneur mm-hmm. and this is your next startup. How are you structuring your time and your day to tend to all of these different activities and include the time that you're making to write and publish? So the write and publish is actually one of the reasons why I I decided to take the job because I missed that writing. All I wrote for the last 15 years were memos. <laughs> so you know, so I, I really missed that. Um, and There's I, an art to it, though. There is an art to it. I wrote a good memo. <laughs> um, so as an example, I just had um, two weeks up in Vermont at my family's farm where I just, uh, by myself, where I read eight books and about 50 articles and worked on an article that I need to work on. So it was great. I didn't used to be able to do that. Um, But I need to find that kind of solid chunk of time because the rest of my time is... Um, you know, ensuring that we move forward with our strategy, our different projects. I have to raise funds for the center. So, um, yep. So I have to uh, develop and cultivate relationships with people who want to support us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, go out and talk about what we're doing, like today, um, go to events. Uh, so I'd say the the time, a lot of the time is spent really promoting and engaging people around the work of the center, and then also finding corporate partners who want to do the research with us, that type of thing. In terms of developing a fundraising strategy, because I think it's a different kind of revenue-generating responsibility that you have when you work in mission-driven organizations and not-for-profit organizations. Um, And fortunately, when we work at large institutions, we usually have the benefit of outstanding development professionals. But how did you develop your skills in that area? Well, I I think I look back to my first job running an organization with the New York League of Conservation Voters, and I had a chairman who was a brilliant fundraiser. And his philosophy was, when I ask someone to make a contribution, I'm giving them an opportunity to make an investment in the future of their world. And so I don't feel at all embarrassed about that. I feel like this is a positive thing that I'm giving mm-hmm. to them. And if they, they're a grown up, if they want to say no, they can say no. So, you know, <laughs> <Right>. um, nobody's twisting <laughs> them. Right, exactly. So I think that philosophy um, was really, you know, good training. I got really good training with him. But also, I truly believe, I take a job because I believe in what I'm doing. And I truly believe in the Center for Sustainable Business, the impact we can have on business. And that we actually, I mean, in the same way that Milton Friedman had a huge impact on where business is today, that moving forward, Stern and the Center for Sustainable Business can have a huge impact on where business goes. And so... I, for me, you know, giving people the opportunity to share in that, whether it's through their time or their money, is something that I see as a great, you know, a flower, a bouquet I'm <laughs> offering them. Yeah. Um, well, there's so. also a sincerity of purpose and a shared passion in yes. it. You're not selling somebody something they don't need. Right. You're, you're connecting with people who share a passion and a concern and hopefully are building trust and mutual respect. Absolutely. And and I was lucky enough to get this started with a grant, a million dollar over two years from City. Bank Foundation, um, who I had worked with at Rainforest Alliance, and who they hire a lot of people out of Stern, and they also have a very strong program around um, sort of inclusive uh, finance. So they were really terrific and helped me get the get it started. And then we've had terrific support from alums, from foundations, and others to move forward. And more evidence of the way that business can spark significant change in this area. Yes. So even though you're carving out some time to write up in Vermont, I'm kind of jealous, um, and there's the the one-on-one outreach that happens with fundraising. Um, I know life in academia and in business requires a lot of meetings. Do you love them? Do you hate them? How do you navigate them? <sighs> yeah, today was one of those days where I had a meeting every half hour. <laughs> so <laughs> on those days, I love them less. Um, but, you know, for me, um, the, the way in which to make meetings work for you is to make sure you know going in what you want out of them so that you don't waste your time. Even if someone else has called the meeting, thinking through what is it that I need um, and figuring out your way to get there. I think 
always helps you have a productive meeting and actually help the people in the in the meeting to also feel very positive about it. So the other part about meetings is it's it's engaging with people, which I like. It's sort of, again, listening, learning, trying to create something together. Um, so that's also, I think, been, you know, I, so I, I mostly enjoy meetings. <laughs> I have to admit, I do too. Be- when you get to have that kind of interaction. And mm-hmm. for many years, particularly when I was um, working as an associate provost, where everybody else felt like their meetings were time away from their work, the meetings were my work. Yes. Because it was about working with a community to mm-hmm. figure out, like you said, your stakeholders, how to solve problems, how to negotiate solutions. And in a very weird way, I found that it was a place where great creativity could happen mm-hmm. if the environment was structured right. in a way to be supportive. Absolutely. How do you set tone in a meeting and make sure that it's not a round robin of reporting or doing something you could do via email? Yeah, I actually was lucky enough when I was at Audubon Society to be in a terrific um, training program for the senior management there. And one of the things they taught us was really, as you go into a meeting, declare what that what the mood is of the meeting, what the focus is. So if it's a brainstorming meeting, you know, declare it as such and be clear and let people brainstorm and, and be careful not to let people shut it down because it's a bad idea. Then, you you know, you move to action and you move to sort of next steps. And how do you – so you, you, can, you can create that um, – uh, sense for people of of understanding what it is you're trying to accomplish. Also, setting out front, you know, not only what the the mood or the uh, the uh, sort of is it a brainstorming or an action meeting or a next step meeting or whatever, but also um, the broader goal. Because I think oftentimes people leap right in without taking the step back and say, okay, just to remind us all, here's why we're here and here's what we're planning to do today. Mood. Yeah. When you say mood, I think are you coming into the room to say, I can tell you're all cranky. Or you're all super excited. Is that what you mean by mood? No, by mood I mean, um, are we in a creative, the the sort of blue sky um, talking mood? Are we in a type A action-oriented targets and time frame mood? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Are we we, we in, I really don't know, and this is just like to have a conversation and see kind of, right? You know, so I... So in other words, it's it's really what kind of mood you want to create to further that goal. Right. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio here on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, um, and I'm talking with Tansi Whalen here in New York, and she's the director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. So in meetings, I also found that the who is in the room shapes how the room functions. And you've been doing these meetings with stakeholders all through your career. Where do you see power and gender coming into play? And then how do you manage it now that you're in a senior role? Yeah, I think that's one of the first things that I learned engaging in meetings when I was young, um, actually, at Audubon Society, I was only 28 as a vice president. Everybody else, I think the next youngest was 40-something. Um, so it was both an age and a gender issue that I had to overcome. And I started to observe, in the same way that you observe what makes someone a good speaker, I started to observe what makes someone a good a good navigator of meetings, right? <laughs> Um, and so that they always seem to get where they want to go, right? What, 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 what are they doing? Yeah, and what are they doing? Yeah, what are they doing? So, so what I think, and people do different things, but what, what I found to really work is you, you listen and understand the power dynamics of, of what's going on in the room. You um, don't jump out there first right away with what you want. You listen to understand where people are coming from. And then when, you're re- when you want to make your point, you actually bring in person A and person B, whatever aspect of their points that you can kind of serve in the interest of yours. So in effect, you're creating a mini coalition, even though they're not agreeing to it. <laughs> so, so, so for example, right. right. So somebody says, you know, the sky is blue and the other person says the sky is green and you feel that the sky is brown. You're like, you can say, well, you know, um, person A, you know, had a good point about it being green and the other person had a point about it being blue. And if you put the two together, you get brown. And so therefore that's what we should be focusing on. Right. So, you know, so you create those those coalitions as you um, as you work through that, and you have to be very sharp about listening to the points that are going to make sense for you to pull out, so that people don't feel like that does 
doesn't make sense that she's saying that's what she's saying. I mean, you really have to be effective at doing that. So you're not, it's interesting because we know that some people go in and they're listening for where they can slide in and make their case. Right. What you're listening is more for how do you hear them so you can build a case that includes them. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it, it wraps up their points and, and gets what they want, uh, as well as taking it that step further or in a slightly different place where I think it needs to go, right? Um, so I think that's one one way to, one effective tool. And I, I also find, you know, and women tend to tell stories more in meetings and men tend to get to the point. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and the telling the stories is not always as effective. Sometimes it can be effective. But I, I guess it's got to be a really good story, right. well told, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and, and probably funny on top of it. And, you know, so yes. Um, so I, I, that's another thing that I've often sort of worked with women, younger women that I've coached, is to figure out where the storytelling is going to be important. And but more often, you just need to go direct to what you're trying to get across, rather than. The story about, you know, if I, I, I heard this, so I saw this, and then, you know, you get to, and there's all the story, and then all of, then you get to the point, right? And, and that's the difference of when the story is functioning as a kind of warm-up ramp mm-hmm. um, to kind of get comfortable stating something that may not be embraced. Right. Rather than being direct and blunt with it. Right. And, and that I think often reflects a lack, a lack of confidence. Right. And I think people experience it that way, so it doesn't actually help you. Unlike, and it slows you down. Unlike the well-told story that may set the stage for the punchline. Yes. So you used a particular word a moment ago, coaching, mm-hmm. as opposed to mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, do you coach? Do you mentor? Have you been either or both? Um, I I have always hired, not on purpose, but it's always ended up that I've had um, young women work for me uh, where I've given them increasing responsibilities and really coached and trained and mentored at all levels, right? So coach them on, hey, you know, this, I observe you doing this, this wasn't as effective as it could be, or mentored, hey, you've now worked for me two years, here's a great opportunity for you um, to take your career to the next level. So that's actually a good segue for me to ask. In What are your goals for going to the next level? What are you tracking to make sure that you get to the place that you want to get to next? Yeah, so my goals for getting to the next level, what I track, I mean, there's the... The simple ones like how much money I raise. That's um, a good one. (laughs) You know, how many students, uh, as you asked, I can get involved. um, How many businesses who will take up our methodology. But I think it will be more how can we shift sufficiently how business thinks about itself away from this shareholder paradigm to the stakeholder paradigm and putting in place ways that I can track how stern the center is really going to help with that. Other, many other people are working on this. It's not just us, right? right? And personally, where do you want to grow? I want to grow. I want to, I want to make sure that I spend more time on myself and out in nature and, you know, reading and writing and, you know, in intellectual pursuits. I want to spend more time with my boyfriend who's all the way on in LA. So that's, oh, that's, a, drag. <laughs> that's a drag. Um, more, you know, I spend a fair amount of time with my family. My parents are getting older. I want to spend more time with them, you know, so, and definitely with my daughter and her girlfriend. So, you know, I, that's, those are my priorities. I, I th- think they're all pretty honorable and reasonable. <laughs> if people want to find out more about what you're doing, they want to get involved with Stern how do they do that? How do they find you? They can find us through our website, um, which they just need to look up Stern Center for Sustainable Business. Uh, they'll see my email there. They're welcome to reach me at uh, twhalen at stern.nyu.edu. Um, and uh, really look forward to engaging either personally or professionally with them. Tansi, I can't thank you enough, A, for joining us on Women at Work, but also for this amazing work that you're doing. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you here. Um, so I hope that you all enjoyed our show today. We really appreciate you listening. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show um, or you'd like to continue the conversation, you can always reach us at businessradio at SiriusX.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. A special thank you to my guest today, Tansi Whalen. I'd also like to thank my amazing producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer for the day. 
Day, Marcus Hillman, the amazing Emily Anton with her incredible problem-solving skills and support. I am Laura Zarrow, and you have been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 111. Everybody, go get your voice heard, and we'll look forward to talking with you next week. Busted Open on Sirius XM Rush Channel 93.